scripture reading this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. I know how you feel. I love to talk myself. <laughs> We're looking at the portion of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount that is called the Lord's Prayer, the Model Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer. And we begin reading there in the ninth verse. And it is the Lord's Prayer, so if you'd like to read along with me or say it along with me, as we bring our scripture before us, that would be wonderful. Uh, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I noted with some interest a few days ago when King Charles III, by the way, that's an interesting number. Do you know the story of King Charles I? Yeah, he was, he was beheaded. You know the story of King Charles II? He's the one that restored the crown back and ended the commonwealth. I wonder what this King Charles will do of that great moment and significance. But one of the things I noticed he did was they brought to him a document, and he had to sign the document, which he willfully did. And it was the document, I exact, can't remember exactly what they called it, it was the writ or the declaration that the Church of Scotland did not have any king but Christ, and that the head of the Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian, is to be Christ and Christ alone. And he had to make that acknowledgement because in the Church of England, of course, he is the head of the church, uh, technically and legally. So they made him sign this declaration. And that just brings to mind what I heard years ago about the old Presbyterian Scottish preachers. And that is that every time they got an opportunity, they would assert the crown rights of King Jesus. And that's exactly what I hope we can do in the next few moments. We can assert the crown rights of King Jesus. This particular petition in the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, or may thy kingdom come, or, or thy kingdom come and be with us. The actual language of the king the kingdom is uh, something we'll kind of try to find some definition and some, some thread that will enable us to have some idea of what the kingdom of God is. But the coming of the king or the kingdom uh, has to do with its arrival. And Jesus himself preached when he came the same message that John the Baptist had preached. And that message was simply that repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. John the Baptist preached that. 
Jesus preached that. That was the inaugural theme of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God had come. It was now being inaugurated. The kingdom of God is wrapped up really in the person of the king. It is a reign of a sovereign. And where the sovereign is, there the kingdom is. And as Jesus came then in the flesh, God the Son coming in the flesh and began his earthly ministry, he told the people that the kingdom of God was more at hand than it had ever been. But also the arrival of the kingdom or the coming of the kingdom has to do with its continuation, not just its inauguration, but its continuation, what it looks like, what it does, and then finally, of course, its consummation, the kingdom of God being consummated. Now, the understanding of the kingdom of God, what it is, what is its duration, the features of the person of Christ, the nature of the, of, of the work of the king and the type of people that are citizens of the kingdom, all of these concomitant notions make up your understanding really of the biblical faith. If you don't understand something about the kingdom of God, you really don't understand the biblical faith. You don't understand Christianity. You see, God rules over all that he has created. He rules absolutely sovereignly, and he rules eternally. There's no competitor with him. There's a recent notion that's working its way through reform circles called the two kingdoms. And it posits a kingdom of, of man, a kingdom of the earth, and it posits a kingdom of God. Well, that's just about half correct. There's really only one kingdom. Because I ask you the question, how many kings are there? And God is sovereign over the world, the earth. He's sovereign over eternity. He's sovereign over time. He's sovereign over all peoples, believers and unbelievers. Reckoning in the Old Testament terms, it was the chosen people of God. And God always ruled through a vice-regent or a king. It was at first in the created order with the mandates and all that was set forth, Adam. Then it was Noah. Then eventually Abraham. And we have the patriarchal rule. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob coming down through the days of the Enfictioni with Joshua and all the different judges. And then finally into the days of the kingdom with Saul. And then finally with David and the Davidic dynasty which continues to this good day. In Jesus Christ, God has always had a people over which he has ruled. And the people of God are those who are under his dominion. John Calvin put it this way. I thought it's an excellent quote. I just couldn't help myself. I had to quote it directly. Christ is said to reign among men when they voluntarily devote and submit themselves to be governed by him, placing their flesh under the yoke and renouncing their desires. Christ is the only king. His is the only kingdom. All other competitors are rebels. Oh, I'm, I'm through with the Calvin quote, by the way. <laughs> this, this is not Calvin anymore. All others are rebels, insubordinates, lawbreakers evildoers, usurpers, 
You see there in what was in our reading earlier from Colossians, the dominion of darkness. The dominion of darkness is not a kingdom. The dominion of darkness is a thraldom, a, a slavery. It is an oppressive time of darkness, which is, in the biblical imagery, darkness is ignorance. Darkness is sin, and darkness is evil, and all the manifestations of it. All that evil out there does not constitute a kingdom. It is a chaos. It is only within the framework of God's order, starting with the crowning of his king. Now, when was Jesus crowned king? I remember all those songs we used to sing in church about when Christ comes, we're going to crown him king. No, we're not. Because he's already been crowned. When and where was Christ crowned? Well, follow me through two or three passages of Scripture this morning, and that'll do it for a sermon. It's just a handful of passages of Scripture. That's about all I'm ever able to, to get in there. We're going to the book of Acts. But I'd like you to turn or at least mark it in your mind, if not in your, in your, in your Bible. Peter, preaching at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, long sermon heavy, lots of things in it, every phrase extremely weighty, one of those great moments in the history of God's people when Peter preached the sermon, but he's preaching there to the men of Israel, and he says, this Jesus was raised up, and we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes the 110th Psalm, which is quoted 22 times in the New Testament documents. And it is this statement from the Old Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. He is the Lord and he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Kings were anointed in ancient Israel. David was anointed, you remember, by Samuel. So the anointing of God, the Holy Spirit really is the, is the true anointing. And when he comes upon one for this office, they have this office. Christ was anointed for this office in, in the... Um, other part of that Old Testament passage in Psalms, it says, Thou art a, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, speaking of Christ's priestly work. What kind of order is that? Well, that is a royal order, a kingly order, Melchizedekan order, as opposed to the Aaronic order, the order of Aaron and Moses in the Levitical system of the tribe of Levi. God has made particular parameters for who his king will be and his king is going to be his own son who will be put upon the throne of David one of the great prophecies of the old testament is the servant song in Isaiah where it talks about the the servant will come and he will be crucified and it tells all about it in Isaiah 53 if you read Isaiah 52 one of the things it says that that the that the king uh, that 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 the messiah this coming servant will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be exalted. There's a threefold elevation of Christ. He will be high. He will be raised from the dead to immortality. He will be lifted up 
He will ascend to on high, and he will be lifted up and set upon the throne of his Father. So at Christ's resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, he was placed, coronated, and placed upon the throne of his father David, his earthly father David. And so there we have the actual coronation and enthronement of Christ. And he shall reign from that throne for all eternity. And the, the promises that are given uh, are, are spelled out even further in Acts chapter 15. In Acts chapter 15, you remember a lot of, a lot of things have happened in Acts in these first dozen chapters or so in the nascent church. But now the church has reached out into the lands beyond Jerusalem and Judea and even Samaria and had gone to the uttermost part of the earth. And there were people from all over the eastern part of the Roman Empire and even beyond uh, that had come to know Christ and had come to, to believe in him and to bow their knees and submit to the authority of the Lord that not Caesar is Lord, but Christ is Lord. And they had submitted themselves to his kingship and his authority and his sovereignty over them. They had done what John said. They had done what Jesus said. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is not something that is conquered. It is something that is given. The Lord said to his disciples, little flock. Isn't that a precious way to say it? Little flock. It's going to please the Father to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is received. The kingdom is entered into. We become part of the kingdom. The, the scriptures don't talk about us building a kingdom or even us extending a kingdom. It talks about us entering into a kingdom that has been provided already by what Christ has done in all of his works, including and especially his atoning work upon the cross. So here we are as members of that kingdom. What does the kingdom of God look like? Well, in the Old Testament, it had a patriarchal look to it. Then it had a monarchical look to it. And then there was a time in which the kingdom of God had a vassal state look to it, as, as Judea especially was under the, the rule of Babylon and then Persia and then and then. Uh, Syria and then Rome and all of that and finally the great king came to liberate and to liberate the captives and to bring forth his kingship what does the kingdom of God look like now well it looks a whole lot like what we're doing if we're an authentic church the kingdom of God is at work in God's people and what the manifestation of it is the church in uh, in the New Testament days there, they had some problems when so many Gentiles, that is, people who were of non-Abrahamic descent, or, or literally were of non-ascent of Israel, Jacob, were coming into the church from places like Asia Minor and North Africa and Italy and, and even uh, within the first century probably Hispania and Britannia and all of those places around about. Far east is Persia. People were coming into the church and so they, they, they had a council. I know you're pretty familiar with that in Acts chapter 15, but let me just quote the scripture. It says, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles and to take from them a people for his name. 
The Lord has gone into the Gentiles. There's no question that the Jews, the descendants of, of uh, Jacob, Israel, were part of God's kingdom. That had been manifested forever. That was obvious. The tribe of Judah, Judea, that was the tribe that David was a part of. That was the tribe that the royal scepter would never depart from Judah. And so Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David and the family and the lineage and the household of David, has come now to be the king and to sit upon the throne. And the Gentiles now are coming into what was to them before an alien kingdom. These that were away from the covenant of God, that were apart from the commonwealth of Israel, that were without God, without the scriptures, without the prophets, these that were strangers and aliens, that is Gentiles, would include probably most of us who descended from, from other patriarchs other than Israel. We now are coming into the people of God and they are now to take from them a people for his name. The great thing in the Old Testament was God had placed his name upon Israel. And now God is having a people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles are coming into the church. They are a people, what the Old Testament prophets, the Ami of God, my people, the possessive suffix, my people. God was claiming Gentiles into his kingdom and into his people. And then the, the words of the prophet uh, after this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David, the tabernacle of David that had fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. So there, it was pretty obvious that the tabernacle of David had been in ruins. I mean, just think about the Assyrian dispersion, the Babylonian captivity. We just finished a study of the book of Daniel uh, first couple of Sundays of this year, and you remember all those captivities, all those beasts and kingdoms that would rule and would subjugate God's people, coming on down to the very worst of them, which was the uh, Syrians with um, Antiochus Epiphanes and all of that, and then what the Romans did to God's people. There's a kingdom that is not of this world. The Lord said, my kingdom is not of this world. He said, my kingdom is among you. He said, his kingdom endures forever, but it is first of all calling out a citizenship. And he's doing it from every kindred, every tribe, every nation on earth. That's why as Christians, we are not by definition racist. Because we only believe there's one race. It's the human race. It's a fallen race. And it is a candidate for redemption. And in Christ Jesus, we have that redemption. And our file leader, our larger brother, our Savior is Jesus Christ. And he is the one that we are in. We are in Christ by his work. And that's the only race that matters to a believer. Matters not which kindred tribe, tongue, or ethnicity you descend from. Because when the Great Commission was given, it was given by a king. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I'm not sure we believe that. Christians in the church seem to run and bow and 
kowtow and compromise with the kings of this earth when our eyes should be upon one single monarch, and that is Jesus Christ himself. His law, his word should be our total constitution for what we say and what we do and how we live. And that's what is being laid out in the Sermon on the Mount is the constitution for the kingdom of God of how God's people live in this world getting ready for a judgment day and an eternal state. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. All you ever read about in the Old Testament is how the nations forget God and how they're cast into hell and how they run from God and how they hate God and they make war against God. But now, from among the nations, there's a remnant. There's a residue of mankind. A large number, a number that no one can count. It's the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham that your seed and those who are believers, Jew and Gentile, are the seed, the offspring of Abraham. Galatians teaches that in its entirety. So does Romans. We are now, as Gentiles, part of that remnant of mankind who now join with the remnant of Israel, which is believing Israel, all of the New Testament Jewish people that came to, to faith in the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. That's what the, the book says. Now, the actual time in which God promised all of this was in the days of King David. He brought Nathan the prophet to David, and he said, David was trying to get things together and some plans and some material to build a temple. He wanted to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord said, really, it's kind of dismissive in many ways the way the Lord looked at that temple. The Lord was real particular about the tabernacle because it reflected Christ. It had to be built precisely according to type. But the temple was a little bit of a different thing. It didn't necessarily. And they had a lot of, of, of foreign and pagan elements. In fact, there was so much paganism in the original temple that they were able to worship every god under the sun. According to King Solomon's 700 wives, they had 700 versions of paganism. And they were all able to be attached to, the, to that temple. The Lord said to, the temple, uh, to David of the temple, you're building me a house. By the way, the Lord destroyed that house on purpose. You're building me a house, the Lord said, but I'm building you a house. And he talked about the house and the lineage of David, which would be a royal kingdom that would last forever and ever. This prayer, this petition, is for Christ to bring all men under his dominion. Let me quote just two New Testament references as we conclude. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. And then one from Revelation chapter 11. 
The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.